Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. We're taking a monumental journey this year. I'm teaching through the Revised Common Lectionary. Some of you are excited about that. I am just as excited. The Revised Common Lectionary is a series of scripture designed to walk us through the church calendar. The church calendar is something that was designed to walk you through the life of Jesus. And Bree created a wonderfully helpful illustration that we'll put up here behind me. Um, there was something similar to this, but I wanted the beginning of the year at the top, and she, I didn't even say anything to her. She just knew that's what I wanted, so she created this, used some watercolor and some ink. It looks really, really nice, and you're going to see this a lot this year. What you'll notice is the beginning of the year, the very top, is Advent. So in the Christian calendar, it begins with Jesus' birth, and... The, the right side is the story of Jesus, and the left side is also the story of Jesus, but it points more towards what we call ordinary time, and that is the story of the people of God living in response to the story of Jesus. We're going to take the whole year to follow this revised common lectionary. So today we are in our second week of Advent. The reading is from Mark 1, 1 through 8. And if you've been with us for any length of time at Southside, you know that I do best when I focus on little chunks of Scripture. It's difficult for me to cover a large passage, and so in order to honor that, and like James, you saw, we had to really boogie through the the book. We w- it would have been like a two-year experience of going through James if I could go at the pace that I wanted so we had to really, really boogie through it to, in order to start this. So here's what I'm going to do. In order to stay true to the way that God has gifted, wired, helped me, um, given me models and mentors, um, I'm going to just pick parts of the passage to really focus on as we go through each of these passages this year. I'm not going to try to teach the whole thing because it's just very unnatural for me. I want to pick parts of that and teach it within the context of the, the passage. So we're going to focus on one aspect of this text in Mark today. We're going to talk about meeting Jesus in the wilderness. Now here's your first fill in the blanks. If you have, if you have sermon notes... In the Bible, the wilderness is a barren landscape that reminds us of our dependence upon God for all things. The wilderness is a barren landscape that reminds us of our dependence upon God for all things. So the Bible uses geography, location, Um, to speak to different spiritual realities, different geographical locations 
represent different ways that we meet with God. Jesus would often take walks by the sea. He would go up in the mountains to pray. He would go into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to pray. He, um, it's, the disciples would go out in the sea on, on a boat into the water. That represented different things. The wilderness represented something in Scripture. So these geographical locations represented different aspects of our walk as disciples of Jesus. And sometimes Ohio, especially in the winter, can feel like this gray wilderness. Karen and I, we used to live uh, on just on the outskirts of Wadsworth in this apartment. And I remember we would, we would take walks in this neighborhood beside our apartment. And we'd be walking the girls and the strollers, and, and we'd be talking about, let's Let's get away from this wilderness that is Ohio. Like, we could go anywhere. Let's go to California, or let's go to New York City, or let's, let's I'm, I'm, we're just so not wired to live in places like that, but we're just like, let's just get out of the, the gray desert of Ohio in the winters, and just the grayness. Like, maybe we'd go to Hawaii. Well, I, I had a friend that was doing navigators, Christian ministry at Kent State. His name is Greg Bryan. He introduced me to that sermon, The Blessed Rest of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. If you haven't listened to that yet, oh, I've listened to it probably a hundred times. So he introduced me to that. So he introduced me to Tim Keller. So I'm eternally grateful for Greg Bryan for doing that. Greg Bryan at Kent State decided to start a ministry for international students at the University of Hawaii, moved to Hawaii, and loved it for about 10 minutes. And then he got really island sick. I mean, he just felt enclosed. He felt trapped. I mean, it was beautiful sunshine. But what he discovered is the wilderness is everywhere. You can't find a spot on earth that the wilderness doesn't exist. So he actually moved back and is at Kent State again. He left Hawaii to come back to Kent State. And now he's working with international students at Kent State. All that to say, Ohio is better than Hawaii. So don't be tempted to move there. The wilderness is thick with opportunity to grow in our intimacy with God and our dependence upon him. In fact, the wilderness is precisely where we meet Jesus in the most transformative ways. It's where we repent of our old ways of self-empowered living and learn once again to receive that all that we need through Jesus. The wilderness is where God takes all the things that we think give us peace and meaning and joy and takes those away from us so that we stop looking everywhere else but to him. So if you right now feel like you're in some type of wilderness in your life, just like Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism, take heart. There is work to do in the wilderness. There is growth and maturing that is only possible in the wilderness. For you, the wilderness might feel like a low-grade but ever-present sense of unease or dissatisfaction or restlessness. Or it might be that your life feels 
deeply fulfilling in some aspects, but there's this relational void that you just can't put a finger on. The wilderness for you might be a season of life. Perhaps you have a newborn and you're not really sleeping all that much. That is a type of wilderness right there. That is a type of wilderness. And that's a very real thing that you have to struggle through and learn. How do I take care of myself at all when I'm trying to take care of this, this precious child? These are all ways you might be experiencing a type of wilderness in your life. And the answers that you're seeking, the help that you're seeking, the relief that you're seeking is not in Hawaii It's right where you are. So resist the lure of escapism and look for Jesus to stabilize and strengthen you right where you are. Which, by the way, is the purpose of Advent. As Chelsea Harmon says, the wilderness is Advent space. It's where we're forced to look for Jesus. And in today's passage, we find people going out into the wilderness looking for answers. And they're pointed to Jesus. So if you'd like, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying, where? In the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Let's pause for a moment there. This quote is taken from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written some 800 years before the book of Mark was written. The quote specifically is from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, verses or chapters 1 through 39 in Isaiah talk about how Israel, the Israelites, were rebelling against God. They were making alliances with foreign nations for protection. They were relying on other nations and allegiances to protect them. They were worshiping idols. They were celebrating their own ability to provide for themselves. They were flourishing in a lot of ways. They had different um, kings that were some not good at all and some okay, that the last part of chapter 39 ends with a prophet saying to King Hezekiah, started out really good, and then got kind of, he started to brag a little bit about his kingdom when it's what God had given him. And the prophet says to, uh, he says to Hezekiah, um, because of this, and because of all the rebellion of our God's people, us, the Israelites, we're going to be forced into in exile. We're going to be pushed out of our land into Babylon. 
And Hezekiah, the great king and leader that he was, was like, well, awesome. So that's not going to happen during my life, though? Okay, cool. As long as it doesn't happen, awesome. So my reign's going to be good, and then he's just a great king. Great example. My reign's going to be good, and then they're going to suffer. All right, got it. That's 1 through 39 of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 starts with 200 years later where the Israelites are being comforted. They are now in Babylon, and God is comforting them. He's saying there is going to be a new king, this mysterious figure called a Messiah, called Emmanuel, God with us. This mysterious servant is going to come, and he's going to die for you, for all of your rebellion. He's going to appear again after he dies. And then he's going to bring, the kingdom's going to come on earth as it is in heaven. And the kingdom is going to reign forever. That's the last, that's 40 through 66 in Isaiah. This quote is from chapter 40. Verse 3, the very beginning of that. So the people who lived during John the Baptist's time knew the Bible really, 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 really well, especially Isaiah, because it was pointing towards the time when the king, God, would come to earth and launch a kingdom on earth that mirrors the kingdom in heaven. They were looking forward to this. So they hear in Isaiah, there's going to be a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And they identify John the Baptist as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And they flock to him. They flock to him because they believe that John the Baptist is somehow ushering in the king of the universe who's going to establish a kingdom on earth. They had no idea what it was going to look like, but this kingdom of peace and joy and immortality is going to reign forever on earth. And they thought, now is the time when this is going to happen. So they went out in the desert. They were baptized to claim their citizenship in God's kingdom on earth. Let's read verses 4 through 6. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Strange details. Um, John's clothing identifies him with another Old Testament prophet named Elijah, who the Old Testament, Malachi says, will usher in the day of the Lord. So every sign is pointing to John as this man in the desert, in the wilderness, who's clearing a path for the king of the universe. Verse 7, and he preached, saying, After me, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit. A tip of the hat to another prophecy in the Old Testament that says when the Spirit comes, he will take the desert and make it a land plush with fruit. So John is saying, I am preparing the way, but after me is coming someone that I'm not even worthy to like untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to do that. And he will baptize you with power. Now, as I said in the beginning, what I want to focus on for the rest of our time is this wilderness motif. And we started with the statement that in the Bible, the wilderness is a barren landscape that reminds us of our dependence upon God for all things. And all throughout Scripture, we see God sending people into the wilderness to meet him in a deeper way through some form of suffering. In Exodus, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It's where they learned to depend upon God for everything. Some of them, it was a hard lesson for most of them to learn. By the way, when they finally went into the promised land, leaving the wilderness into the promised land, what river did they cross? Jordan River. Where was Jesus baptized? Jordan River. Where was John baptizing people? Jordan River. There's a lot of symbolism that ties this event together with the Exodus, the Israelites. Jesus, after his baptism in the Jordan, was led by the Holy Spirit, where? Into the wilderness. How long? Forty days. It's where Satan tempted him to to stop trusting the Father for provision and identity and power. Today, you are in a wilderness. I'm in a wilderness. This period between the two advents of Jesus, the first time he came and the second time he's coming, is a type of wilderness. And we face the same temptations that the Israelites faced in the wilderness. And I'm just going to name two of them this morning. Two wilderness temptations. One, we are tempted to long for the good old days of the past. Nostalgia will trip you up. It will keep you from looking forward in Christ to the new thing that he's doing. Some people never recover from nostalgia. They live their whole life thinking about the thing that God did back then. Listen to the people of Israel complaining in the wilderness in Numbers 11, 4 and 5. Oh, that we could, we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. I mean, that's hilarious. I can relate to that type of complaining. They wanted to go back to enslavement to the Egyptians so that they could eat cucumbers. Now, we might call this looking back at the good old days revisionist memory. It's when our memory revises history and we remember 
the past better than it actually was. Or maybe we could call it selective memory. We remember the good things and forget the bad things, and we do this collectively as a society. I mean, people often want to go back to the Leave it to Beaver society, where in the 50s it was just so much better. It was not so much better for a lot of people. There were cultural sins back then, too, that were very oppressive. We always want to look backwards. That's not where God is. God is here with us right now, forward-facing, forward-looking. We also practice this revisionist memory on a personal level. Here's something that I've personally experienced and I hear a lot. Man, five years ago, ten years ago, I remember I was so on fire for Jesus. I wish I could go back to that. I feel like I'm in a wilderness. I need something like that to fire me up again. And I experienced that type of wilderness for a long season of my life. And my answer to the problem of feeling like I was in the wilderness was to become like a spiritual junkie going to every conference I could find to give me a hit of something that's going to fire me up spiritually. I remember driving to a church to take these classes on Wednesday evenings. I would drive hours every Wednesday to go to these classes, and then I'd go hang out with the guy that one of the co-founders of the church at his house and just pick his brain, and I just wanted a piece of that fire. I wanted to be you know, passionate and zealous about God again. And what I learned is that in the wilderness... The raw material of youthful zeal is baked into a mature and adult zeal. My experience of youthful zeal, which is good, which is a stage, which is godly, which is God-given, is that I spoke boldly. I would say, I would say what was on my mind about Jesus. I would rebuke whoever I needed to rebuke. I was careless. I wasn't thoughtful. I wasn't careful. And I would complain about lukewarm Christians. We need to get more fired up. We need to be more mission-minded. We need to be saving the world. We need to be charging hell with a, with a squirt gun. Youthful zeal. Good. It's a stage. It's important. You can't stay there. I remember one time I... I did the classic that you've heard from a million pastors. You guys all cheer for your sports teams and you don't cheer for Jesus that way. That is so goofy. <laughs> Youthful zeal. What I learned in the wilderness is that adult zeal prayerfully measures words but speaks with greater force. My experience of youthful zeal is that I was externally expressive, but internally discontent. David danced naked. That's what I would say. We're not expressive enough. David danced naked. When the ark was brought into Jerusalem, David worshipped and danced and praised God and sang naked. What are you guys doing? Why aren't you up dancing around? But that youthful zeal didn't provide the inner strength to prevent 
David from the sin of Bathsheba just a few chapters later. And that's why I've personally had many ministry friends whose churches thrive off of this kind of genuine and godly but youthful zeal and exuberance only to not move past that and eventually experience some kind of devastating moral failure because their youthful zeal never grew beyond that. After David's moral failure, where did he go? Just a handful of chapters later, where did he go? Absalom turned on him, his son. He marched into Jerusalem. Where did David go? Into the wilderness, where that youthful, exuberant, expressive zeal would be baked into a hot, a white-hot burning passion for God and mature. So let me speak to the Christian who may be looking back at past days when you, like David, were exuberantly and zealously dancing before the Lord and you long for those days. You want to go back to those days and you're just trying to force it to happen. Today it feels like you're in a wilderness. Henry Nouwen uses house fires as illustrations of this. Imagine a house that's on fire and all the windows are open. The fire is not incredibly hot. It's it's escaping through the windows and it's getting all over the neighbor's house and the neighbor's yard. If you close the windows, the fire will burn hotter like it's inside an oven. And that is our soul. What once was that exuberant external fire that was just leaking out the windows God in the wilderness closes the windows of the soul, closes the windows of the house so that the fire burns hotter internally. The reason that the Spirit has led you into the wilderness is that he wants the fire burning hotter. He's internalizing it. He's turning you more and more into a contemplative, thoughtful person whose intensity comes out Gently, instead of overwhelming and hurting people. He's deepening you. He's maturing you if you let him. Youthful zeal depends on other fires to keep theirs going. Mature zeal can sit in a room alone with God and burn. And my personal conviction is that the church of Jesus Christ in the West is not lacking for youthful zeal. My goodness, we hunt for it. We are lacking an adult, seasoned zeal that has been matured in the wilderness of life. And if you want an interesting case study of what that looks like, read through the Gospels and witness the youthful zeal of Peter. I mean, he embodies youthful zeal. And then read First and Second Peter, written 30 years after the gospel accounts, and see a different man, a man who's been through a wilderness, mature, seasoned, powerful, God-honoring, God-dependent, holiness, grace, gentleness. Peter is a different man. 
because he's been through the wilderness. He's been seasoned by God in the wilderness. He's been baked into a more mature person in the wilderness. And we are all God's children. If you have submitted yourself to Christ, if you have surrendered yourself to his lordship, to if you have said that you are my savior, you are my king, there's no way I could cross this chasm between me and the Father relationally, but you have done that on the cross, and you have rose again and given me fresh and new and resurrected internal life. If you have done that, you are God's children. But God wants you to grow into an adult child at some point. From adolescent to mature, seasoned fire. So the wilderness is where God removes our dependence upon ecstatic spiritual experiences and matures our love, our fire, our passion for Christ. And this is what we need. We need more and more and more of that type of zeal in the church. The second wilderness temptation, which I won't speak nearly as much about, is we are tempted to complain about scarcity God invites us to trust him for spiritual abundance. When the Israelites were hungry in the wilderness, God sent them manna, bread from heaven. And his instruction was just take enough for today, but take all that you need. Take all that you want. Eat until you're full. I'm providing it. Everyone will have as much as they want, which is interesting when Jesus did the miracle of um, feeding the thousands. He, they also made a point um, to eat as much as you want, eat to your full, and then he told the disciples afterwards, go gather what's left over, and in one account, they each had their own basket full of food to eat. So God wasn't being stingy. He wasn't saying just take a little bit. He said have as much as you as much as you can feast on, as much as you can handle, take it. And in the same way spiritually God has sent us spiritual bread to feast upon in our wilderness. Guess who that was? Bethlehem means in Hebrew Beth the house Lechem of bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. In the same way, God sent to the Israelites manna, bread in the wilderness from heaven. God sent to us, to Bethlehem, manna, bread from heaven that we can feast on as much as we desire. In other words, you will know and grow an intimate friendship with Jesus to the degree that you are hungry for it. And if you don't sense that you're in a place where you're hungry for that, it is a legitimate and good prayer to say, God, Make me more hungry for you and see what he does. Every wilderness need that we experience is abundantly met with the presence of Christ. 
The invitation of Advent is to remember once again that the ultimate solution to all of our needs is always Jesus. We were hungry in the wilderness. God sent us Jesus, the bread of life. We were sorrowful. He became a man of sorrows that we might have joy. We were ashamed. He bore our shame that we might have peace. We stood accused and condemned before God. Jesus stood in our place, condemned to capital punishment that we might be pardoned. We were dead in the desert. Jesus was raised back to life to give us life abundantly. And my sincere invitation to you, as we are all in this temporary wilderness together, is to make your single-minded pursuit in life to know Jesus more. And when you are tempted to look for other solutions to our wilderness problems, stop. Pause. Pray. Don't think that a change of life circumstances is going to satiate that hunger. It won't. Don't fall for that lie. Search scripture. Talk with other Southside friends. And don't stop until you find what you're looking for in Christ. And you will. You will. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though life can feel like a wilderness, it's a severe mercy when you take away the things that we believe will satiate us, will satisfy us. And I pray for each of us that as we look around this wilderness for answers, for comfort, for strength, for nourishment, that in this wilderness, we would find Jesus. And it's in his strong name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.